Welcome to episode number 54 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and Reformation Roundtable exists as a production of Christ Covenant Church here in Centralia, Washington. Christ Covenant Church was planted in 2021 as a mission church of the CREC, that's the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. We are Reformed, we are Evangelical, and we are excited to spread the glories of the gospel throughout Lewis County. Now, this following audio comes from our Lord's Day on July 11th, 2021, and we hear a wonderful sermon from Pastor Devin Smith of Reformation Covenant Church in Oregon City. But before we get to that, there is an elder ordination on July 11th, we welcomed Luke Murky as one of our elders at Christ Covenant Church. So now we have, as of the recording of this episode, we have three elders at Christ Covenant Church, and we are so thankful for that. If you would like to join us for worship on a Sunday morning, go to lewiscounty.church, where you'll find the current times and location, and we would love to have you come and join us to experience the glorious wonderful and encouraging transformation that covenant renewal worship offers. Hope you enjoy the sermon, and I hope you join us for worship this coming Lord's Day. Our meditation in preparation for worship this morning comes from Amos chapter 7, verses 7, 8, and verse 15. Thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos... What do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people, Israel. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you now, trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, who has been measured with the plumb line of your law, and found perfect and complete. We are here because of him, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 100. Hear the word of God. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures to all generations. Lift up your hearts. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thank you for calling us into your presence and telling us to sing, to shout joyfully, and to serve you with gladness. We have not made ourselves. You have. We are not our own people. We are yours, the sheep of your pastures. You have known, created, and called us your own. Before we ever knew our own name, you knew us and chose us to be your sheep. We enter into your gates with thanksgiving and come before you into your courts to bless you, to praise you, and to thank you. Thank you for your mercy, which is everlasting, and that your truth endures to all generations. We ask now that you send your spirit among us as you serve us by lifting us up into the heavenlies with you to worship you in the beauty of holiness. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. And amen. Amen. In our lectionary readings, which can be found on the front of your bulletin, we come to Psalm 85. Our meditation came from Amos, and now we are at Psalm 85, which begins, the psalmist tells us, with, Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. Selah. It then goes on to say, You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. God is faithful even when we are not. We are told by the psalmist that Yahweh 
had been faithful to his chosen people, even though they had not been faithful to him. And not just the people themselves, but also Yahweh bestowed favor on their land as well. God restored the fortunes of Jacob. But more than just the restored material blessings, God also had forgiven the iniquity of his people. The psalmist remembers here in Psalm 85 that Yahweh has actually covered all their sins. He had taken away all of his wrath and had turned away from the fierceness, the fierceness of his anger. This is something that the psalmist is remembering. He's recounting this. In other words, this happened in the past, and the psalmist believes it with all his heart, but doesn't see it happening for him now in the present. And we know this because in verse 5, he begs God to cause your anger toward us to cease. Looking back through our own history, we might see this pattern. We know he has been favorable to us in the past, but, but why is it, we might ask ourselves, that right now we need to ask him, as the psalmist does here, will you be angry with us forever? But we are not a people who, we are, but we are a people who walk by faith, not by sight. We believe the promises of God and not our own personal experience. We just sang this. It says, when darkness seems to veil his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In verse 8 of Psalm 85, we are promised that God will, in his own time, speak peace to his people and to his saints. Also, we're promised that his salvation is near to those who fear him. Beloved, that salvation came during the incarnation. Later in, in uh, Psalm 85, we read that mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. That happened in Jesus. In fact, we are promised that, quote, truth shall spring out of the earth. What does it mean that truth shall spring out of the earth? Is that just a metaphor? Maybe. But what if it was a beautiful promise of the event that took place 2,000 years ago, when the very truth himself sprung out of the earth, conquering sin and death, and setting loose his kingdom, and setting free those bound in the captivity of sin and darkness. This way, truth, and life, Jesus Christ goes before us and makes his footsteps our pathway, as the psalmist tells us. This is the gospel that we find in Psalm 85, and this truth ought to bring us to our knees as we realize how great our sin is and how great our need for forgiveness is. So this reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So as you are able, will you kneel with me? Scripture tells us in Psalm 85, Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord and grant us your salvation. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you bowed low in sin. Your anger is just. Your wrath is perfect. We sin in countless ways and at countless times. We are often numb to the vastness of our sin and the glory of your holiness. However, we come boldly to your throne, not because we don't believe that you are a consuming fire, but because we believe that your anger and terrible wrath fell not upon us, but, but your Son in our place. Because he was the perfect sacrifice, we come boldly to your throne, knowing that the heavy load of sin we carry can be confessed to you, and that you have promised you will forgive us. Forgive us for our anger, our pride, our self-righteousness, our stiff necks, and our hard hearts. We ask you, by the promises of Christ, to no longer be angry with us over our sin. Will you not... Revive us again, Lord. Show us your mercy, Lord. Grant us your salvation. We confess to you now our own individual sins in Selah. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, and amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Psalm in Psalm 103, we are told, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, 
so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Today is a good day. It's not only the Lord's Day, but it's the day we get to ordain Luke Murky as an elder here at Christ Covenant Church. Now, if what I'm about to say sounds familiar, it's because it's almost verbatim what Brett Baker said about eight weeks ago. Actually, not about exactly eight weeks ago and probably about to the hour. Ordaining a new officer in the church is a wonderful blessing because it shows signs of growth and maturity in that church. We are still a baby church, just a little tiny infant. This is only our eighth Lord's Day since we launched as a mission church back on Pentecost, and we have a lot of maturing and growing to do. Ordaining a qualified elder is a great step of growth. To be ordained into the office of elder is no small thing. Hear the charge, listen to the charge for elders in 1 Peter chapter 5. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Also in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, we are told, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. This ordination of Luke is, first of all, based upon his qualifications as set forth in the scriptures, such as the one we just read in 1 Peter 5, also in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. In addition to this, we are also, one should also be looking for a man who is desiring the office of elder and who also is, as the Lord provides, already shepherding God's people. This is what the session has seen in Luke. Luke loves the Lord. He loves his family, and he loves his community that God has placed him in. Luke especially loves the saints in Lewis County and longs to see Christ Covenant Church bring glory and fame to King Jesus. Luke, you've been called to receive the ordination as elder in this church by means of a unanimous vote by the session of Trinity Church and following an examination of your life and your faith, along with the testimony of your faithfulness as, as you've managed your own home and served in planting this church and in your work and service through, your, through previous churches as well. It's a privilege to be able to ordain a man who not only desires the office, but is also qualified. This is an answer to, to a prayer that we pray every week here at Christ Covenant Church. That in the providence of God, he would, this is our prayer, that in the providence of God, he would raise up men to lead our church in battle as we follow Christ in his war against the domain of darkness and, and against the gates of hell. We have asked and the Lord has provided. Luke, you are entering a holy war, a war in which we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. Therefore, Luke, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. As you have already been doing this, we charge you to do so and more to the glory of God the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke, before we lay hands on you, we would have you answer the following questions publicly. There are six of them. And you have to get the right answer on every one. <laughs> Luke, do you affirm, do you reaffirm your faith in Jesus Christ, your Savior? Acknowledge him as Lord of all and head of the church, and through him believe in the one living triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I do. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the infallible word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the only ultimate rule of faith and practice? Will you give yourself diligently to know the Bible and set an example in prayer, doctrine, service, and witness to the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection from the dead? I will. 
Will you be diligent with God's help to frame and fashion yourself and your household according to the doctrine of Christ and to make both yourself and your household wholesome examples and patterns to the flock of Christ? Luke, do you sincerely and without reservation adopt the statement of faith of Christ's covenant church? And do you agree with its form of government as detailed in the bylaws? And do you promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any part of that statement of faith, you will, of your own initiative, make known the charge, in, make known the change in your views to the elders? I do, and I will. Finally, do you then solemnly vow to accept the office of elder in Christ's covenant church and promise faithfully to perform the duties and steward the resources entrusted to you by the grace of God? Amen. We come over here. So as Pastor Smith and I lay hands on Luke, will you guys pray with me? Father, when your son, Jesus, ascended into heaven to sit at your right hand, we are told that he gave his church many gifts. One of those gifts was elders. Thank you for the gift of Luke Murky. Thank you for giving him a heart that desires the office of elder. And thank you for giving him a life that matches the qualifications listed in your revealed word. We ask for protection on Luke and on his family as he, he, as he bears the heavy load of eldership in leading your people. Give Luke and Anna and his six sons strength, courage, and stamina as he serves you in the body of Christ. We ask that the congregation here, both present and those who are absent, would live their lives in such a way as to make the service that Luke offers to you a profound joy, and that each household under Luke's care would be nourished and equipped for their kingdom work of bringing heaven to a world who only know the darkness. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. morning. I'm going to bring you greetings from Reformation Covenant Church and also from Brian Nolder. I spoke with him yesterday. He said he really enjoyed his time up here with you and wanted wanted me to extend his uh, thanks to you for, for having him. I want to begin with a question. Are you satisfied? I mean, are you truly satisfied? And the answer to that question is is not of little importance. It's of great importance. Great importance not just in terms of your own personal happiness and, and maybe your own personal usefulness, but the mission and and purpose of this church, the reason why you were put here to serve the Lord in very interesting and dark times, has everything to do with that question. Are you satisfied? Are you full? Are you full of joy? Are you blessed? In our scripture reading today, we're going to see the connection between God's blessing that he gives to his people through the gospel, through Jesus, and the way in which he extends his glory in the world through that blessing. And so I would invite you to stand as we read Scripture. I don't know what your tradition is here, but we stand at Reformation Covenant Church. So I invite you to stand. We're going to be reading in Isaiah chapter 55. We're going to read the whole chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. A leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, You shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and teaching and the hearing of his word. And all God's people said, you may be seated. In the broader context of Isaiah, I don't know what you have been studying these eight weeks you've been together and what you were studying in God's word before that time. I'm assuming that probably quite a few of you have read through Isaiah, and some of you probably read through it quite carefully and have thought a lot about its teaching. But I want to share with you a thought that I think is very helpful. Um, it's been helpful to me as we've, we've been preaching through Isaiah And uh, this is a thought that I believe you need to take hold of. The the New Testament is not a replacement of the Old Testament. It's a development of the Old Testament. It's a growth of the Old Testament. There's a maturity that takes place. Old and new are just relative terms. They're not meant to be taken absolutely. We don't discard the old because we have the new. Indeed, we read in this passage a description of the life of the new covenant. Here it's called an eternal covenant, an everlasting covenant. This is your covenant. We're going to sit at a table where we renew our covenant bonds in, in memorial of, of the things that are celebrated here and enjoyed, uh, enjoyed here. And here's the reason why I say this. Isaiah was written for our edification. It is a book of promises, not merely to those, uh, some obscure people living in the past. Too often people have read it this way, and they've cherry-picked verses that they find inspiring, cherry-picked verses that speak of the Messiah. These are beautiful passages. Think of the Emmanuel passages, the beginning of Isaiah. And think of the servant songs, and especially Isaiah 53, the suffering servant and the atonement. Of our sins, but they pull those things out and they and and they ought to. They ought to celebrate those things. But Isaiah is full of gospel promises. And some of those gospel promises, indeed, many of those gospel promises are taken up by the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, but not all of them are. We are meant to, to go back into Isaiah and to more fully understand what it is that Christ came to give to his people. And this passage is your inheritance. It is your inheritance, and you need to claim it. You need to go hard after it and seek it, as it says here, diligently. Seek these things diligently. There is an argument in this passage. Isaiah 55 begins with a call to know and experience these gospel blessings and to reject supposed blessings that are found in idols which can never satisfy. Now, it, doesn't, it never says the word idols in this passage, but much of the language that is here in Isaiah 55 is very similar to other passages like Isaiah 44, for instance. 
where idols are mentioned as, as being things that can never bring satisfaction to God's people. And God marvels at, and Isaiah marvels at the fact that God's people continually go back to idols seeking satisfaction. They can never satisfy. To those who respond to this call, God offers this eternal covenant. This eternal covenant, which we are going to enjoy today. As it says here in our text, these people are blessed even with the same blessings that were given to David himself. David was given sonship and adoption. He was given and offered an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that reaches across not just ages and ages and all eternity, but across the continents. What Isaiah sees and what God declares to us in these blessings is also extended to us. See, David knew this himself. He knew that when God made this eternal covenant with him, this, this what we call the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, he understood that there would be implications for all mankind. Because if God is making his son to be king over all, then he means to bless all the nations through that son. David said literally as he reflected on these great blessings that were poured upon him and his house, he said, this today, this blessing is Torah, is instruction for mankind. He understood God is going to do something great through his son for all people. And so these blessings extend from David to David's son and to all God's people, but they don't stop there. As the argument goes on, God's covenant people in this eternal covenant through the Son are so blessed. They're so blessed. This inheritance is so rich that the other nations see this and are drawn to it. They're called to it. It says here they come running to it. They seek God's people because of what they see there. In our text, God promises to accomplish this. As it says here, he glorifies his people. He glorifies his people. There at the the end of verse 5, a nation you did not know shall run to you because because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. They can see the glory on this people. This is the very same argument that is taken up in other places in Scripture. I'll give you one other example. I don't know if you're familiar with Psalm 67. This exact same dynamic is seen there. In Psalm 67, the psalmist rejoices that God has brought, apparently it's a a harvest psalm. They're rejoicing that they look out and they see how how God's people are full and, and they've brought in the harvest and and um, God has once again shown his blessings to his people. And, they, and the psalmist says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. You can see there the language of Numbers chapter 6, the blessing that was given to the priests to give to the people. But then it goes on, That your way may be known on earth. May God bless us that your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations. And then he just exults, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let Washington praise you, O God. Washington doesn't praise God, by and large. Centralia doesn't. It's a minority of people in this area. That praise God. And that is not the way it is supposed to be. And we ought to look out at that and say, Oh Lord, that you would change that. That you would fill this land with worshipers. With people who love you. But how does that come about? Bless your people. Glorify your people. 
That is how that will come about. So that the nations can be glad. It starts with blessings on Israel. Upon his people. From there it extends to the nations. This is exactly what was promised to Abraham at the very beginning. Our father. uh, He received this promise. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so this is our inheritance. The blessed inheritance of the church is nothing other, listen to me, it is nothing other than the life of the world. If we're not blessed, there's no hope for these people out there. These lost people. We must seek this blessing. So having looked at the argument of this chapter, I want to turn joyfully now to this blessed inheritance. What is it that is being described here, this life that is offered to God's people, that God is calling them to? It is my prayer and desire that this would be so desirable to you that you would cling to this and wait for this and pray for this and trust the Lord Jesus for this indeed that you would wrestle the whole night through until you can say with greatest joy, this was my inheritance. It has been precious to me. So let's look at this. It shows up in our passage in two places, this blessed inheritance, right at the beginning. And it has at the beginning there a certain cast to it. God summons his people in a certain, to, to, to certain things. And it shows up again at the end, in the last two verses. Let's begin first with the Uh, The first description of gospel blessing. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk, without money, without price. And I was thinking as 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 we were laying hands on Luke, as I often do right around that time as I'm going up to preach, I often have this thought. I hope this isn't too startling to you. I have absolutely nothing to offer in this situation. The putting on of my hands, the speaking of my words, are just vibrations in the air. There there is nothing I have to offer to you. But if the Spirit of God is present in this ordination, in the ministry of the Word, then everything can be accomplished. We have nothing to offer. And this joy that is described, and I want, to hear, I want you to hear what I'm saying. I am not giving you a pep talk. Hey, let's get excited. Let's be happy. Let's be joyful. Cheer up. No, what I'm telling you is that the life that is offered to you in the gospel, you have nothing with which, no resources within yourself to secure. You must simply come to the Lord and seek it from Him. This is something that God gives to His people. It is a gift. You have to see that in the first place. Without price, there's nothing that you can do that can pay for this. Satisfaction and joy contentment, great peace. This is the vision of blessing that is offered us at the beginning here. And I want you to consider the particular images that were chosen to describe this blessing. God uses these images, water and wine and milk. And it probably just made some of you hungry and thirsty there. These God chooses to picture the manner in which he satisfies his people because these are the things that people know and, and I hunger and thirst for. Some of you are probably water people. There are quite a few wine people, I would imagine, that are here. And this is Washington. I'm assuming most of you are, are Reformed and come from a Reformed background, so you probably have an affinity for wine. Maybe you perked up when we read that part of the passage. The young ones, you're probably milk people, and some of you were probably excited. Hey, I know that. I like milk. But listen, I don't think that what is going on here 
is an age and liberty distinction. That God is, is, is aiming at all the different diversity of, of people in their age groups. This is rather a distinction of needs and occasions. Water speaks to our daily, even many times a day, sustenance. Milk is nourishment. It fills us. It helps us to grow. Wine speaks to our need for pleasure, peace, joy, and happiness. You see, what God is saying here with the water and the milk and the wine is that when he satisfies his people, it is a very full and deep and satisfying. It is a very round satisfaction that covers all of the matters of your life. From simple matters, like a glass of water on a hot day, to a toast at a wedding, to a toast at a wedding, The gospel blessings are upon those things when they are done in the name of the Lord. That water, that wine, these are images of how God meets the needs of his peoples. He knows what you are. He knows what you need. In the gospel, we are thoroughly blessed. Thoroughly blessed. Our lives are covered with blessings. But as you probably know, And as you can see from this passage, there's all these images, myrtles and cypresses, wine and milk and water. And these are indeed blessings. We don't want to minimize the fact that God continues to meet our physical needs. But obviously there's something much more in these things. Even unbelievers are often blessed. God often pours out these blessings upon ungrateful people. And so there's something more in these things. That is understood. These are, you see, gospel blessings. They're not simply the blessing of holding up a cup, but they're a blessing of a changed heart through which you understand through that cup that God loves you and He cares for you and He understands your needs. And He means to delight you and satisfy you. Jesus understood this passage this way. He understood that what he came to offer to the world through his death, his resurrection, through the pouring out of his Holy Spirit and the life that he would grow in the church, that this is exactly the life that he would give to his people. In John 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22, the Spirit... And the bride, that's us, say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. But there is a repair work that's implied in this as well. He must satisfy us. He must fill us because something has gone terribly wrong. We have become a lustful people. We have become a people whose desires have not, they're not simply normal, natural human desires, but they have become something in which we are lost. Our wrong desires are the very core of our depravity and a generator of all these other evils that we see in our lives. We see this in a couple of different places in Scripture. In James chapter 4, he considers this, this, that they are a desirous and craving and lustful people, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. And children, I wonder if your parents have ever quoted this to you. When they see you quarreling and fighting sometimes, getting to the heart of what's really going on here, why is this fight broken out? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires, literally your lusts, are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Adulterous people. I hope you see when he says they're adulterous people, you know, he's speaking to the church. And that's how we sometimes are, and we can fall into that even among God's people. 
his covenant people. We can walk back away from this. God offers us all that we need. We can fall into the darkness of our, our lusts and our depravity. Horrid lusts, cravings, neediness, ungodly desire driving us to do wrong. Oh, when will we be free of this? I want to remind you of one other text that speaks to this. Romans chapter 1 says that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, literally glorify him. They did not glorify him or give thanks to him. In other words, he was not their chief delight. He was not that which filled them, gave their life's purpose and meaning. They simply neglected him. And so they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man, mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart. And he goes on from there to describe all of the evils that we find in mankind, from our immoralities all the way to our murders, to our lying, to even our disobedience of our parents. Where does it come from? We have turned away from the worship and service of God. We have left him behind. We have rejected his glory, and instead we have turned and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And so from the fall, we've been a lustful people. The way of our people has been to suppress the knowledge of God, pushing out his glory. It creates a vacuum which sucks in anything which it can find, telling ourselves that this, this will finally satisfy me, believing a lie. My friends, what is needed, of course, is God himself, not merely milk, wine, and water, but God. These are but symbols of his returning our hearts to a place of contentment and joy in him. You see, God marvels continually in Scripture that we try to satisfy ourselves in anyone else. As I mentioned before in Isaiah 44, Similar language is used. It's a a story of a man. It's like a parable of a man who takes a log and with half the log, he chops it up and he starts a fire and he cooks some meat on that log and and he fills himself. and, And then with the other half, he makes a god and he bows down and worships it. And he says, thank you for saving me. And the summary of this situation, as God looks down on this situation, he says, this is a person, he says, he feeds himself on ash. He's full of ashes. He's trying to fill himself up, with, which can never satisfy him. He's eaten meat and bread, but he's really given himself over to that which can never satisfy in Jeremiah 2, it says, my people have committed two evils. Now, Jeremiah wrote a hundred years after Isaiah. They still did not learn the lesson. But again, we're turning to that which can never satisfy. Jeremiah says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern when you did not have a fresh supply, a, a supply of fresh water, which was a spring or something, that's a fountain of living waters. It sounds like something magical or something you'd see in like a Zelda video game or something like that. But really, just a fountain of living waters is just a fresh water spring. It's just a continual stream. You can go to it any time you want. But when you don't live quite near that, you have to make a cistern. So what they would do is they dig it deep pit, and they would cover it with plaster as best they could. And you would pour water in there, and you'd collect rainwater, and you'd go and you'd mark all, you'd walk from the well and fill it up so that in dry times you would have a reserve of water. 
But God says, this is what idols are like. It's, it's a thirsty day. It's a hot day. And you go to the cistern for satisfaction and you find that there was a crack. Oh no, all the water has gone out of it. And what you were hoping to satisfy yourself with, now you're left with nothing. He feeds on ashes. That's what our false gods are. That's what our pornographic images are. It's what our endless scrolling through social media, seeking validation, seeking fulfillment, deep longing over our neighbor's house, our neighbor's life, our neighbor's wife, our neighbor's car. These are ashes. It'll never satisfy us. So God summons us. And he calls us back. But listen, he doesn't call us back and say, finally, through, through idols, you will be satisfied. No, it's something other than this. As C.S. Lewis said, it feels good to scratch an itch. Right? That's what happens when we gratify our lusts. We scratch an itch, but it comes back. C.S. Lewis says it feels good to scratch an itch, but it feels better not to have an itch at all. When God satisfies you, it's transformative. Something different altogether. It's something greater. This is why the imagery at the end is one of lasting joy. And I want to read this for you. I just want to focus right there on verse 12. If you have your Bibles open, you can read it with me here. Verse 12. You see what another image of this gospel blessing. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. You shall go out in joy. This is, this is the life of the satisfied, gospel-drenched people. Joy being led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills, as it were, breaking forth into singing, the trees clapping their hands. This is the inheritance of true gospel spirit-filled people. As they walk across the earth, as other men do, they see and feel differently. They go in creation, creation which is good. They acknowledge the goodness of creation and they see that goodness. They see creation in the very same way that God sees it. They are festive. They say with God everywhere as they look, very good. Look at what God has done. Look at what God has done. Where others see trouble and heartache, they, say, they see mission and meaning and opportunity. The earth is transformed, as it were, before them. Now, this sounds romantic. And I, wanna, I want you to understand that what I'm describing here, what Isaiah is describing, what God is calling his people to, is not romanticism. He's not saying go out there and look at the trees and look at the streams and look at the little deer. We saw a deer prancing away from the highway. It was a cute little thing. Um, and, and he's not saying just, just look at it until your heart is just warm, until you, you, you feel romantic and you want to write a poem about it. If you give a kind of superficial reading to this, you might see that maybe this is one of like the romantic poet's the glistening dew on the back of a lotus in the moonlight with a teardrop in my eye. But that's not what this is. This is something much more. You see, the romantics did believe in a beauty and a goodness of creation. They believed it was being lost with the industrialization, and there's a whole story behind that, but I uh, won't get into it. But they, but they believed wrongly, at least the unbelieving ones, they believed wrongly that they could simply celebrate the beauty and the joy and the goodness of creation apart from God. You see, it was not grounded. Their, their beliefs in the goodness of creation was not grounded in reality. The work that God had done and who he was. Their system crumbled even before it started. It was a hopeless, desperate endeavor to suck the joy and happiness out of life apart from faith in God. 
You see, it's not just the goodness of creation that is recognized. That is true. It leads to joy. It is the Spirit of God. As we said before, He sustains joy and purpose and meaning in the heart. It's something that the Romantics never understood. They had not the principle of goodness within themselves through the Spirit to build anything more than some books of poems and a few failed educational movements. Joy in the Spirit. The Spirit brings joy. The Spirit satisfies. We were doing a Bible study a few, two weeks ago now on Ephesians 5, and this struck me. Again, our gospel inheritance, God calling his people to something better. It's right there in Ephesians chapter 5, what the Spirit produces in us. Do not get drunk with wine, he says. When you think about why people go to a bottle after a hard day, often, now, there's nothing wrong with that. It is a gift of God. It's celebrated in this passage and in other places. Psalm 104, God has given wine to men to enjoy. But why do people turn to the bottle? They want joy. They're seeking a chemical stimulant to find joy. But Paul says that leads to debauchery. It's letting go of all our moral standards. But instead, now listen, be filled with the Spirit and look at the life that comes out of that. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. Okay, it's not, again, this isn't a pep talk. You just need to start singing more. Cheer up. No, when you look to the Lord, and, and as, as you read through Ephesians 5, you see that his primary message is that your attention ought to be so fixated on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where the Spirit of God is poured out. When your attention is on Jesus, when you are abiding in Him, that is where this lifestyle takes place. No, these songs come out of your heart. You can't stop a person like that from singing. You can throw them in a Philippian jail in the middle of the night, and their hearts will be full. They will find reasons to rejoice. Songs will come out of them. Giving thanks always, he goes on, for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's all one sentence. And I want you to see, he's referred there to Christ like five times. This is what it means. That is where this blessing lies. There's a reason why this is, there's a reason why this Gospel blessing is placed right here in Isaiah 55, following right on the tails of Isaiah 53. The people whose transgressions have been covered, whose sins have been forgiven, whose iniquities have been taken away, whose Savior is resurrected, come to that God and He will satisfy you. But well, we must make some application and conclude. Now, I have thought through a number of different ways that this could be, there's all sorts of application that we could make. But God has made his own application right here in our text. He tells you exactly what to do. He leaves you with an action plan. Verses 6 through 11. These are preconditions. If you want this inheritance, then you need to look at verses 6 through 11 and take them very seriously. As God says, listen carefully to this. I want to lead you in a good way, into a way of blessing. But here's what you must do. Here's what you must be committed to. Church of God, listen even in the church, we can turn to our idols. We can walk out of church even on the Lord's day and we can, the trees don't sing, the, tree, the, the trees aren't clapping, the mountains aren't singing, our hearts aren't full. We all know what it's like, even on the Lord's day. I'm sorry to say this, but I trust you know this is true. To walk out of church 
and to still feel the ash in my mouth. So what must we do? Well, he says this, first of all, verse 6, seek the Lord diligently. He's already called them, come to me, come to me, listen to me. But here in verse 6, he says this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. God, it says in Hebrews, is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You see, it's not the seeking him that I want to draw your attention to. Of course, that's, that's the urgent matter here, but I want you to see the urgency. The urgency. There are sadly, tragically, those even who have been found in the church who have found themselves with ash in their bellies and and find no place for repentance. They did not seek the Lord in a timely manner. They did not seek Him in the occasion. As it says in Ecclesiastes, that you youths are to seek Him in your youth. Things change when you become old. Do not say to the Lord, oh, I'm going to pay closer attention to the Lord in later times. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says, no, no, no. That's what your youth is given to you for. Seek Him while He is near. But we must also forsake our humanistic thinking, our humanistic ways. You must seek God diligently, but then in the verse 7, and he's going to have an extended kind of discussion of this, we need to be ready to turn away from our own ways of doing things, our own thoughts, our own ideas, our own things that we valued, things that we thought could satisfy us. He says in verse 7, let the forsake, let, let me start again. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There's no satisfaction in God for a man who clings to his own schemes of happiness. This is the heart of humanism and secularism. I can figure this out on my own. I know what is best for me. Children, have you ever argued like that with your parents? Or with a pastor? No, no, no. I know what is necessary here. I know the way forward. I know how to find my own happiness. God says, you need to be ready, O man, to forsake your ways, your thoughts. Because God says, my thoughts, going on, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. You'll hear the echoes of this. All, th- this passage is quoted so many times in different places in the New Testament. Here in Romans chapter, uh, I think 11. Not sure. In Romans. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Listen, your way of pursuing happiness, of finding pleasure and satisfaction, of finding joy, it is as futile as trying to reach the heavens from where you stand. God is in heaven and you are on earth. His ways are that much higher than your ways. That's what he thinks of your schemes for pleasure and happiness. And then he extends this metaphor, and this is very beautiful, and I want you to consider this. As the rain and snow come down from heaven, I want you to think with me for a moment of the directionality that God has written right into creation. There is a reason that sunlight comes down from above. There is a reason that the rain comes down from above. We are continually 
reminded of where life comes from. It is a daily reminder that all of our good things, we are completely dependent on life from above. We are also completely dependent on God's thoughts, which also come from above. His word, which comes from above. He says, and they do not return there, but water the earth. There's one direction to these things, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. It's quoted in 2 Corinthians there. So shall my word be that comes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so if we believe that we're going to simply reject that, reject the wisdom that comes from above, reject the path of blessing and happiness that comes from above, reject God's counsel that comes from above. It is like, as it were, rejecting the rain from above, rejecting all life from above. We, we just reject the sunlight. We reject, and we're going to do it on our own. We're going to produce life on our own. You see the folly in that? You can't do that. It's futile. It's ash. Our words, our thoughts, we, we, we can throw them up in the air. They just fall right back to the earth. We offer nothing to heaven. Our counsel, our science, our schemes, our plans, they don't bring life to us. The word of the Lord brings life. The promises of God bring life. The gospel brings life. Set aside, set aside, seek the Lord while he may be found, and set aside your schemes, set aside your ideas. Now, I find it so interesting in conclusion here. As I mentioned there, that's quoted there in 2 Corinthians. Paul saw this promise, Isaiah 55, when he looked at the situation he was dealing with, here's what he was dealing with. He's dealing with a very, very, very poor church up in Macedonia. And he's talking to a church in Corinth. And he's encouraging them to give generously. And he's, he's referring to the work of grace that was found in this very, very impoverished church. And they became an example of generosity, of mission, of purpose, of life. And he's saying, Corinthians, have you heard of this marvelous work of gospel grace that is taking place in Macedonia, these churches, listen, they're not the richest churches. This is no prosperity gospel. They're not, they're not driving, you know, they're not flying Lear jets up there in Macedonia. But do you know what they're doing? They are pouring out of their poverty to care for the needy. And he says to the church in Corinth, and I say this to you, do you want to share in that? Do you want a part of that? Because listen, the glory of God is redounding all across the Mediterranean because of what they are doing. When the Macedonians speak the word and people see their generosity, they know they know that God is in their midst. They know that God has blessed them. They are a people who are satisfied. They are a people who go out and the hills break forth in song and the trees clap their hands. And so he says, listen, if you want a share in that, if you want a share in that, as it says here, God will give seed to the sower and bread for food. God will abundantly supply all your needs. If you want to be a part of the work that is taking place here, there is a work that's taking place. God is doing radical things in our world right now. Lives are being transformed. We have seen through this whole COVID moment, souls coming to Christ, people shaken up, coming to church that haven't stepped foot in a church in decades. It's beautiful. This is a time 
This is the time to shine. This is a time for God's glorified people to speak the word boldly. And you can have a share in that. But you have to go about it the right way. We must respond with humility and confidence in our God, calling on him and seeking him diligently. Amen? Amen. Soli Deo Gloria. May God be glorified in the preaching of his good news. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your gospel promises, which you have made amen and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have sealed to us, you've promised to us, and Lord, we claim them today as our inheritance. We desire, Lord, above all, that we would know this life that is offered to us in your good word. Make us humble before you. Show us the manner in which we cling to worldly ways and make us to trust you better. In Christ's precious name, amen. In our gospel reading today, we heard about one king, King Herod, how when he was faced with the social pressures of a cocktail party, ignored his better judgment, and had one of his own subjects, John the Baptist, beheaded, and importantly, had his head placed on a silver platter. That platter was symbolic of a gruesome feast that was taking place. And it was the king who was feasting on, or rather devouring, his own people. Not accidentally, this didn't happen on accident, the very next story in the Gospel of Mark, and our Gospel reading for next week, will tell of a different kind of king. This king, faced with the social pressures, again, brought about by thousands of hungry followers, takes a very different approach. This king, King Jesus, instead of devouring his people the way Herod did, feeds them. He feeds them with such a feast that a dozen baskets of that feast are left over. Two kings, one devours his people, the other king feeds his people. This same king, King Jesus, promised not only to feed us, his subjects, but to do so with his own flesh and blood. We serve a king who literally gave his very life so that we might be fed upon that broken body and shed blood. When we come to the Lord's table, when we eat the bread and drink the wine, we are being built up in faith and strength by the spiritual body and blood of our Lord. This is a table that belongs to all of Christ's visible church, all who claim and are claimed by Christ through baptism, may and should come and eat with joy. So for those of you who have been baptized, come and welcome to Jesus. So the charge is this, go enjoy into the world God has given you. Fulfill the cultural mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and take dominion of every square inch of God's green earth for the kingdom of Christ. Will you stand with me and receive the benediction from Psalm 85, verses 10 through 13. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.